RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? We'll talk to a guy tonight making that question more pertinent. 7 p.m. on the Pacific Coast. Is that right? 10 p.m. on the Eastern Coast. The Atlantic Coast, some people call it, but I call it the Eastern Coast because, you know, must be time for Mission Log Live. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Ray. And hi, I'm John Champion. That's right. We're back again. Your Star Trek pals here to talk to you, our Star Trek pals, about something sort of Star Trek. Oh, oh, sure. Our guest, Jules Erbach, has been friends with Rod a long time. And sure, he's a huge Trek fan. And sure, he interviewed Gene. But he's going to take us into the future. How about a holodeck? Might not be 300 years in the future. Oh, no, no. Maybe maybe 50? Well, we'll find out when Jules teaches us about what he's been working on. Can I ask a, a quick clarifying question? You say he interviewed Gene. Gene... Oh, oh, that was Gene. Uh, I'm going to go with Roddenberry. Oh, OK. Well, yes. Well, yes. that makes this quite pertinent then, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, it's yes. also apparently the word of the day. I didn't realize, but I've used it twice now. So uh, <laughs> only eight more times this show and it's mine. Hey, everybody, we would love it if you were part of this conversation. Uh, do me a favor, if you would click the Zoom meeting link or use the one top from your smartphone or you can give us a call. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. Then enter the meeting code on the screen or in the description. We're here uh, to facilitate interesting conversation with interesting people. And and while John and I could talk about this stuff all day and probably have a time or two, it'd be so great if you called in with your questions as well. So do all that stuff like I was talking about. Uh, if you're joining us live on Facebook, fantastic. If you're joining us live on YouTube, that's great. If you're picking up the audio-only version of this show later, hey, that's fantastic, too. Uh, the one thing I'm going to ask of everybody, though, uh, please, however you're finding this show, hit like and hit share, and that way uh, more people can know uh, what we're doing here, and then more people will be here, and oh, so much more fun will be had at that point. Yeah, well, speaking of all those people joining us, uh, well, specifically now, people who are joining us now are saying hi as they do. There's Scott, there's Pam, there's Paul. Uh, Paul says, hi, Ken and Ray and John. Thank you, Paul. There's Scott Mays. There's uh, Evan. Evan says, hi, John and Ken and Jules. Go, go, Star Trek holodeck. Thank you, Evan. Uh, there's Chris, there's Carlos, there's Joyce, uh, there's Peter, uh, there's Rick, and uh, there's Casey. And Casey's saying, where is John Cooley? So, Cooley, wherever you are, join us, all right? Uh, there's Steve, uh, and he's, he's actually shouting out to Earl. He says, nice graphics, Earl. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, everybody else chiming in. So, continue to chat with us here on Facebook. Send us your messages, your questions, and, of course, call in or click the Zoom link to join us live. Hey, coming up, we got Jules in a couple of minutes, but this is the part of the show where we tell you other stuff that's coming up. Other things going on, either stuff that we're doing, and we're not doing a darn thing, I tell you. But uh, somebody else on the Roddenberry Podcast Network is uh, Dr. Trek. Larry Nemechek is on tour. Can you imagine? If you're in Michigan, uh, you can go to the Dearborn Heights Library. Now, you can do that anytime you're in Michigan, but really you want to do that this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Uh, for a talk entitled Gene Roddenberry, 1969 and 2019. That is based on the documents uncovered by the Trek Files podcast. Uh, this is a free presentation. And if it hasn't been made clear, it is a presentation being made by Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. Uh, you can get more details on the event page at LarryNemechek.com. And yes, it is spelled like it sounds. Just like it sounds. Yes. Hey, every week, I like to ask you a poll question unless we forget <laughs> and then we'd like to ask you a poll question. Uh, so last week, of course, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about was how Star Trek The Motion Picture was back in theaters. Uh, it was out Sunday. I think there were two showings. And then Wednesday, that's tomorrow. I want to say just one more showing of Fathom Events. Uh, sadly, I will miss it. I love uh, the big screen. I know. Dude. You can tell me. Yeah, it was amazing, right? Uh, you, well, I, I, go ahead and let's do the poll question. But yeah, let's. Okay. Back All right. So inspired by that and inspired by our guest, Max uh, Cervantes, last week, we asked you, communicator or communicator, 
TOS style handheld, the, the little flippy device, 88% of you prefer that one. TMP style wrist communicator, only 12% of you showing love to that one. I'm, uh, I'm a little surprised, but it's okay. It's okay. We love them both, but well, it, it, it was, was a hard decision. Big and clunky and dumb looking in, T- in, in the motion picture. Honestly, I mean, yeah. if you if they had had something that looked as cool as honestly, if they had something that looked as cool as the Dick Tracy wrist radio or something that looks as cool as an Apple watch, maybe people would have been more on board. Maybe there, maybe if you had a button where you just push it and then like the top flips up, you know, and that's a good place oh. to keep a, oh, a picture of your special lady friend and maybe a pinch of snuff and then all the <laughs> yeah. other stuff. You would, well, you know, yeah. have hey, Ken Ray coming to yeah. us live from 1943. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Glad to be yeah. here. Hey, we do have a, a poll question for this week. Uh, I was going to say in honor of uh, our guest, Jules, but really just sort of a, well, I would say pertinent to his visit. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you like your reality, augmented or virtual? Your two questions are AR or VR. Uh, augmented reality is losing big time right now, 17%. Yeah. Virtual reality, 83%. See, I was figuring a different question, and we'll probably hit Jules with this in a moment. I was more wondering which one is going to play a bigger part in our lives. Like, which one do you think? Hmm. You're a betting man. Yeah. You, you go to Vegas, you're throwing 50 bucks on one. Is it going to be AR or VR? Um, but, you know, which one do you like more? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it probably depends on the time frame and the accessibility. Like for me, I actually I voted for augmented because right now I love the idea of, you know, pick up my phone and just doing something quick and easy that's beneficial to what I'm doing right now. Like, oh, I, I want to see that art or that furniture or directions or something like that. Whereas I think about VR as a thing that takes a little more time investment. I'm in the office. I got to put the thing on my head and then just get completely lost and disoriented for four hours hours so you know it's a different experience start knocking stuff off shelves almost like you know every single time yes all right so these are going to be great questions for jules in just a moment but i gotta say really quickly um yeah i'm really bummed that you're not going to make it to the motion picture in fact i would encourage you just to not do whatever (laughs) it is you're planning to do tomorrow night yeah because here's the thing i saw it the day it came out i think when I was nine and this was not like one of those, like I got to see that because it's coming out. It was more like my mom and I had an afternoon. And so she took me to this movie that she knew was going to be big, but neither of us are really, you know, huge Star Trek fans. And I got to figure I was bored out of my skull. I'm I'm willing to bet as a nine year old, this would have been an incredibly boring film for me. And then, you know, I've watched it a few times or several times since then. And I love it. There's so much about that movie. That's fantastic. But seeing it on the big screen was was so incredibly different. Hmm. There were two or three times that I actually teared up, including, and you're not going to believe this, yeah. that 15 and a half minute flyby around the Enterprise. As you should, as you should tear up during that scene. Yes. Well, and here's the thing. I think part of the reason is because you and I now are so far away from the original series. Right. Because yeah. it was like four years ago, I guess, that we wrapped that up five years ago, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It's been a few days. And and when you and I were watching the motion picture for our recaps, we had just finished the original series. I want to say maybe three months before that, because we plowed through the animated series. So I had a little bit of that, oh, oh, there's that there's that place that I lived, you know, uh when yeah. that happened. And the other thing is, even though when you're watching it on TV, you see the teeny tiny little enterprise <laughs> flying around, you know. <laughs> Um, it, it really becomes much more, it's brought more into focus, if you pardon my use of that term, uh, when you're seeing the teeny tiny little enterprise on the great big giant screen and still there's Beecher, not even, you know, uh, you can't get all of Beecher on the screen. That's you right. know, masterful bit of filmmaking on that. Um, and then of course it's just great to see those characters again. So cancel mm-hmm. your plans, John Champion and anybody I else. I guess so. Yeah. I think you have to. Anybody else who is not sure what you're doing tomorrow night, I know it's a Wednesday. I know it's weird to get out on a Wednesday night, but it's probably going to be another 10 years before you get a chance to see it on the big screen would be my guess. So, yeah. yeah. And Fathom did not pay us a thing, although we should get in touch with them in about nine (laughs) and a half years. (laughs) Make that happen. Yeah. Because I got to figure I just sold at least one ticket. 
All right. Well, let's welcome our guest. As we mentioned, joining us tonight is Jules Erbach. Now, Jules is a founder of Otoy. Uh, he's the founder of Otoy, a company that is spearheading advanced graphic creation, primarily in entertainment, visual effects, and gaming. Uh, what he also does is think big about the future. Uh, so, Sure, we've got things like VR and AR, but what's that going to look like in 20 or 50 years and beyond? And how close are we to a holodeck? As I mentioned before, he's also a friend of Rod Roddenberry's, which means that he was around uh, as a longtime friend of Rod's. He's around when uh, Gene and Majel were alive uh, in his teenage years, and he even interviewed Gene in the early days of TNG. Uh, now, Jules' company also built the TOS-style bridge that we have in our VR space in Sansar, which you can go check out at sansar.com. So he's starting out as a Trek fan. There's just a lot of Trek to talk about. So, Jules, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you, John. And by the way, I did go on Sunday to see the motion picture on the big screen, and it was amazing. I hadn't seen that on the big screen since I was five years old when the movie came out. Wow. And it, it was, it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I kind of, yeah. And, and Ken's right. You know, when you see it, it's, I have a you know, giant 4k TV and I've seen the you know, 4k remastered version. Uh, but there's, it's, it's, you can't appreciate that film unless you see it on the giant screen. And for the same reasons that Ken mentioned, when you see that tiny enterprise feature, everything, the framing just feels so different. And I don't know what, what master they use, but it was beautiful. There's no film grain. Um, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't like one of those, you know, super cleaned up versions either. It just looked, it looked great. It looked great. And it wasn't the special edition either. It was, I'm trying to figure out what print they used, but it was, uh, it was awesome. It, it was the, the experience. Yeah. It was a theatrical cut, but, uh, yeah. done in 4k. That's my understanding. So yeah, you missed some of yeah. those little things that got added in later, which I, I definitely or DVD res. Yeah. 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 But um, I heard a rumor that they're that they're redoing that they want to do a 4K remaster of the uh, of the 2001 cut, the um, you know the, the director's final cut, yeah. um, and and do, and do another Fathom event with it. So maybe it won't be 10 years before we see it again in theaters. But <laughs> right. you never well, know. it'll be it 10 years before you see this one though, because now yeah. I, have to, I got to defend my position at this point. I, <laughs> I, I, I like this cut. I like I like. I kind of like it the way it is. It's it's yeah one of my favorite Star Trek movies. I know it's not everyone's favorite, but it's one of mine. Well, take us back a little bit, because you said that you saw that movie when you were five years old when it came out. So you were a uh, you, you were a Trek fan from way back. Uh, talk to me about yeah. that. When, when did that start for you, and and what what was your series? Yeah, well, it was the original series, and I grew up. So I was you know born in in Paris and grew up in France when I was eight. So we moved to L.A. We were where I'm at now, um, you know, in 82. And my dad was a Star Trek fan. My parents were Star Trek fans. So we watched Star Trek, the original series in French on television. And when the motion picture came out, they just took me to go see it. And I was young, but I loved it. I, I remember loving it. I remember asking my mother to translate the subtitles for Spock and the Klingons. And I couldn't read, barely read or whatever. So it was, it was something that stuck with me. And, um, and then I remember Star Trek II came out right before we left France. I saw that in, in, in Europe as well. And of course that was, you know, that was another huge thing. So for me, it's so interesting because the middle of those, you know, original series films sort of came in the middle of our big move from France to, to LA. And it was a few years after um, moving to LA, uh, you know, sort of mid, you know, 86 when I, when I met Rod and then I met Gina Major shortly after that, because we all went to, Rod and I went to the same uh, high school, junior high school, Harvard high school, which became Harvard Westlake. Uh, so, so you've got all the stories about Rod. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, but here you were. So you were a Star Trek fan from back then. And, and here's this kid with the, uh, a very interesting last name, Roddenberry. Did you put two and two together and go, Oh, wait, that's... no, it was another friend who's like, you know, his dad created Star Trek. I'm like, who's his dad? I had no idea. I mean, it was, you know, when you're, when you're 12 years old, you just sometimes don't piece these things together. Yeah. And yeah. And so I actually, like, Rod and I were, I think we were in the same drama class at first and I had no idea. I didn't even know Roddenberry who that was, but I was a Star Trek fan. I was, I appreciated the, you know, the, the, the show. I didn't know who was you know, behind the scenes doing this stuff. And I, I quickly learned. I mean, I think that year, once my friend told me that, I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I think that same year, 86, uh, the voyage, you know, uh, Star Trek four came out. Um, and then Rod, once he got a clue that I liked Star Trek, started like taking stuff from Gene's office and giving me like the phase of Star Trek, uh, you know, role playing game and all the, you know, the, or, or, you know, it was like a ship based, uh, board game or whatever. And all the, all the manuals and everything. He's like, I don't want this. You know, I don't know if you know Rod's backstory, but he was, 
not really into Star Trek when he was like a teenager. It was, he came later. That, you know, he became um, you know truly immersed in it. So um, it was it was interesting, and and uh, and I I kind of you know appreciated everything with the original series. And then one day, you know, this is after, of course, you know, Ride. You know, we I think it was just after Star Trek Four. He said, "Oh, my dad's doing a new sh- show called Star Trek: The Next Generation, and it's going to be great." Because um, I think I think the thinking was at the time Star Trek Five was you know, like coming out and there was, it was, it was this thing where it was, it, there was a, a sort of a, a reclamation of Star Trek that, that I think I could sense from, from Rod's describing what, what was happening at Pride that I think he, he felt reflected his dad's pride in it. And that was, that was interesting to see. And, and certainly through the eyes of a 13 year old at the time, um, you know, that I had no idea how movies were made or anything. I just love Star Trek and I love science fiction. Um, and it was fascinating to sort of be exposed in this, in this old drips and drabs to, you know, how the sausage was made, I guess, but it was better than I could possibly have imagined. And um, as you alluded to, you know, when I, yeah, when I actually ended up interviewing uh, Rod's dad, Gene, uh, for our school newspaper, they made me the editor-in-chief of the newspaper at 13. And, you know, it was meant to be this progressive thing, like do whatever you want with the newspaper, it's student run. I'm like, okay, we're not talking about football or lacrosse, I'm taking <laughs> eight pages to talk to interview Gene Roddenberry about Star Trek The Next Generation, which I think at 87, the fall of 87 is when it aired. Um, and so we were, I think, in eighth grade. And I think the interview was was not long, you know, after that. Um, and and it was amazing. I had no, I just asked Rob, like, do you think your dad would ask, you know, would answer questions for the newspaper if I asked him these things? And Ross like, sure. And you saw the interview, you guys have seen it. It's like, it's long and voluminous and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was incredible. Like Gene made an audio tape for this whole thing. So we have his voice, not just the answers to the questions. Um, and so we transcribed it and I did all the graphics and Adobe page, I was called Altus page maker at the time. Uh, and it was, it was glorious. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was the late eighties. And that was sort of my, um, you know, it, that was kind of how I, at first I think really connected with Gene other than just seeing him in the house when we were kids that, you know, playing with Rod. So. Well, I, let me go back to something really quickly here. So in your 13-year-old mind, uh, what's worse, the fact that uh, Rod had no idea what Star Trek was or that he was stealing stuff from his father to give it to you? Oh, stealing stuff from his dad to give it to me was amazing. Like, no, I, everyone was happy <laughs> okay. with that. Rod was like, I don't want it. My dad doesn't, doesn't know it's there or doesn't care. It's just sitting in the shelf somewhere. You have it. I'm like, I will take it. And I literally, my mother sent me to summer camp to do archery. And I just, all I did was read Star Trek books and, didn't play it all with the other. I mean, it was, it was great. I had the best summer ever with all that stuff. So um, no, I think, I think that right. It's not that I didn't know Star Trek. He just was, he was, it was, it, it's complicated. I mean, you almost have to, I'm sure when he talks about it, he'll describe why it was something that he just didn't feel connected to. It was something his father did when your own father's doing something. Maybe at the time, it's not something you feel as connected to, you know, and, and I mean, and I started to see, I mean, I've known him forever. I've known him after 33 years or something like that. It, it's, you know, I started to see the, the you know, sort of, especially after, after Gene died and other shows got made with the Ron Verney and that's when he started to become really invested in what was being done, including, what, you know, Star Trek and everything else. And so it just, it just sort of was a thought. And I think there was a lot of reasons why it was, you know, what, what, what his parents were doing. He was a rebel, you know, he says he's open about that. Yeah. Um, and so there was a little bit of rebellion against that. You know, even, I think you said in interviews, oh, I like Star Wars more, you know, at the time. Um, we're out of space, 1999 lunchbox. But, you know, I, he did like Star Trek. He knew exactly what it was. And then, and with Next Generation, um, and I remember I was talking about Star Trek Four, Star Trek Five. These are the movies that came out while we were you know, growing up. And I remember him saying with Star Trek Five, I was like, yeah, my dad doesn't really think it's in continuity or whatever it was. But, yeah, I, don't know, I don't know if he used those exact words, but something like <laughs> it didn't really happen. And Next Generation is, is really the, you know, that's Star Trek for my dad. And so, um, you know, and of course Gene died right before Star Trek Six came out. Um, yeah. And I think that, that Next Generation changed a lot. Rod was very aware of that. I mean, he, heck, he took me to the sets and I got, and, and then he introduced me to Gates McFadden and Brent Spiner and Gates took me to the sets. I got it. It was, it was amazing. So and he was a gopher on the show. So of course he knew what it was. He was in, he was sort of involved in it, but I think his love of, and passion for what his dad was doing, it, it just grew, you know, as he grew out of adolescence and into his teenagers into his twenties and, and uh and that was fascinating to watch as well but that was that was his journey and uh yeah it's um it's it's sort of amazing to sort of think back to those decades um with with you know with both rod and of course you know i when gene uh, passed away it was um it was 1991 three months before that my dad passed away and rod and i were you know pretty much the same age we we're both 17 where when our dads died um and and our dads are almost the same age; they're in their seventies. So we had this as a bonding experience. And what was what was interesting is that Majel, 
why I had ended up knowing for 20 years almost after that point, um, you know, she, she was really the, you know, the parent that I got to know really, really well. Um, and Gene, unfortunately, just, you know, he passed away when we were all just too young. You know, it was, I didn't really get to spend the same kind of time that I did with Majel. And, and so a lot of how I've, I've, you know, been, you know, other than, of course, my best friend, Rod, you know, the Robert family is through, through Majel and seeing her over 20 years has been, was also an amazing insight into just, you know, her life in relation to Star Trek. I mean, obviously there was this, you know, she was the carrier of the torch and the legacy of, of Gene for, for, for decades, really. Um, and a lot of the Gene Roddenberry shows like Andromeda and, and the like that came about and, and, um, and the others were, uh, which Rod was also involved with, came out of Majel's like, you know, going through Gene stuff and saying, this is something we should, we should do. We should try to keep the legacy going. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it was, there's so many stories. I don't even know where to where to start or where to. Where well, to I, I, I want to come back to all of this in just a second. Just a, a couple of little uh, notes and and comments that are coming in. Uh, first of all, I do want to let people know that we have that audio interview uh, of the questions that you submitted to Gene. It's about a 12, 13 minute uh, response that he sent to you on tape. We have that digitized, uh, and we're going to do something with it. We'll we'll put it on the side. We'll I, maybe put it in our VR space so people can go in and listen to it. But it, it's pretty great. So we, we will make it available for people to listen to. Another thing you mentioned, Gates showing you around. I don't know if I ever told you Gates asked about you um, <laughs> into the, into the studio, maybe a year ago, I, I guess that we interviewed <laughs> her or something like that, maybe a little longer. And she asked about you. I, I was, you know, I'm showing her around here, Roddenberry. She was like, how's Rod? But then she wanted to know about you. And she was <laughs> like, Oh, Jules, brilliant. He's this great guy. He's amazing. Yeah. I was like, I, yeah, he's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you should. Give them a call. Um, and then the other thing really quickly here, uh, people are mentioning that you're on the ISS uh, as you do the show. And uh, Chris Riker says, if you miss this episode, Jules will fly really fast clowner clockwise around the earth so you can watch it live. So uh, I know that you would appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, you would definitely get that reference. So my, my favorite movie is, is, is Superman, you know? Yeah, things, so. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call 669-900-6833 or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or if you're on Facebook follow the links there uh, enter the meeting code that's there uh, you'll get to talk to Earl and then you'll get to talk to Jules so uh, I don't want to like you know cut short the Star Trek time but there's a lot of AR and VR stuff that I want to get to as well so uh, building a bridge between the two is it a love of Star Trek that got you into the field that you're in now? Is it a love of sci-fi that got you into that? Or is it like, okay, Star Trek is what I do for fun. What I do for work is this other thing. And I don't even know how the two, you know, uh, how the two uh, inter interact or intertwine. Like many people that are, that are in technology or aeronautics or science, I mean, they were inspired by Star Trek. I mean, I definitely, you know, it was in my brain, but I, I, my career path and this company that I built, I mean, I've, I've can trace it back to 1983. When I first moved to LA, I went to the Santa Monica Pier. I saw this video game called Dragon's Lair and it was a Laserdisc game. You know, if you got, remember Laserdisc, right? But that came before DVDs and it played back the cartoon with a joystick and you could control how the animation played out. And Don Bluth created this stuff and it was mind blowing to me because it showed as far as I was concerned, I mean, this was completely, you know, it was, it was hand drawn, of course, but it was animated. There's, it was like a massive computer was sitting here next to Pac-Man with a joystick you can, you can control it. And immediately my mind thought of like, well, if they could do this, like what would, you know, could you make it so that this thing could be like a hologram? And I'd seen, you know, holographic prints at, at the um, Hayden Planetarium in New York. And I was around that age. And so I, I started to really think about video games and movies and, and reality all sort of blending together. And I had this deep passion. And I figured video games would be the really the angle to do that. So I started learning to code, learning to program. And that, that really is what got me into the space. Now, I will say that when Encountered Farpoint came out and in 1987, again, uh, and, and Riker goes into that, that holodeck, to, you know, finds data in there, I think, you know, and it's a jungle area. I mean, that was, this thing was like, wow, this thing is truly visualize in a way that I, I think is experientially what I'm, what I'm going for, right? And that, so there is a Star Trek connection there, but a lot of the directory of, of Otoy, the company that I started, was around getting video game technology to render um, film quality. And I, we, we accomplished that about 10 years ago, we put out a piece of software called Octane Render, and it's now used in Batman and the Wasp and Captain Marvel and all these movies, the opening of Westworld, opening of Netflix as the crown, they're all done in our render. And it's nearly instantaneous. So we've, and, and it follows the laws of physics and light. 
and it uses video game GPUs, graphics chips that are built for the PlayStation, the Xbox, and um, PC gamers probably can, you know, are familiar with NVIDIA and AMD. And it uses that to deliver higher quality graphics than what RenderMan was doing five years ago. Um, and that's sort of like simulating the laws of physics and light is something that I always had as a goal going back 25 years, going back to before I graduated high school. So that's the genesis of the company. And there is along the way, though, I mean, it's impossible for, for me to ignore how things like the holodeck inspired, you know, what, what I wanted to see happen. And so there's, we're a software company, but the interesting part about our trajectory is we work with a lot of interesting partners that take our software that, okay, well, you guys can now render reality, you can shoot photons and rays around, get back a real image. It's nearly real time. You're using commodity hardware. Let's, let's connect this to VR. And so my VR, first VR story is John Carmack. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with who he is. Uh, he created Doom and Quake. Uh, super well-known in the video game space, and he is the CTO of Facebook's Oculus company. And so we partnered with him at five years ago. In fact, the um, Star Trek bridge that's in Sandstar was originally for, for them, for Facebook and Oculus. And we built a whole pipeline to deliver these experiences that you could see in the limited, in the limited way inside of VR. And that was our first you know, partnership. We worked with other glasses vendors along the way. But one of the interesting partners that, that came along a couple of years back um, that's now public um, you know, cooperation and Roddenberry is involved in this is a company called Lightfill Lab. And they're building, uh, the three guys out of um, uh, up north in Santa Clara, California, and they're building these super high density displays. So your iPhone is maybe 400 pixels in an inch, this is their displays are 4,000. So every single pixel in an iPhone has 100 subpixels that spray all these rays out. And their technology at this density allows you to generate a white light emissive hologram. So things can look, can be above the surface or below it. And the bigger the surface of the display, and these displays are like the, are almost like tiles, you can connect them together to fill any size room you want or any size surface. Um, you have the actual hardware display optics for a true holiday. And this is not 50 years away. This is, they're, they're, they just got $28 million a month ago from Verizon, from uh, Comcast, Samsung, which is critically important. Uh, they're building these things, and these things are going to be in the you know, 2021 range in terms of, of you know, theme parks, concerts, and yes, eventually your home, your home theater. And our partnership involves creating all of our tools, all of the software to make sure that you can render, it's about a billion pixels per square foot. Uh, so it's about 32K, you know, joking, 4K TVs, this is 32K for something that's the size of an iPad. Um, and you're, you're dealing with, with orders of magnitude greater pixels to stream and to render, but it's, it's all doable. Um, and thankfully computers and chips keep getting faster and smaller and better, and we have cloud computing. So there's the ways of doing it. So the holodeck is a 2020s thing. It'll be insanely expensive to fill an entire room floor to ceiling, but they, the panels can link, they can be curved. You can actually do something better than the Star Trek holodeck. You can make it so that like, um, you can actually have it so that the, like the movie theaters where you go behind the, the back wall of the theater to go out the door so the light doesn't leak in. You can have a wall in front of the door that's holographic so you don't even see the person walking in and out. It's like, it's it's crazy. It's it's <laughs> it's the kind of stuff that you, know, you actually start to build these things in real. You're like, hmm, maybe the Star Trek, you know, maybe in Star Trek it's not, because you know, it's the thing is with Star Trek, there's, amazing thing where okay we're not really close to, to the spaceships side of things you know or, or sort of the macro you know advancements in fact some people say we've gone slower you know where where are the supersonic jets you know where but in terms of computing i mean wow like it doesn't take more than 10 years for what's supposed to be in the 23rd and 24th century to become reality you know picard's ipads that were what in, in the in the 90s i mean steve jobs introduced the ipad in 2010 it took 15 16 years and, the, you know, and of course, it's even worse for the original series where you have like, you know, no, no graphics, no nothing. Um, and even on the, you know, the, the movies where they showed these vector vector graphics on the Enterprise Bridge and you realize like you know, everything is not touchscreen, everything is there's no there's no real limitations for what you could display. And it, it's the same sort of thing with the holodeck. Like there is holographic displays seem like they're like far out because people are thinking, oh, it's going to take lasers and all these things. No, it just took the cell phone revolution to get you know really small screens and Sony to you know sort of shrink things even further for you know viewfinders and camcorders and then all of a sudden you have the pieces for these 4000 dpi density panels you know you, you, it takes a little bit of venture capital to fund these things but you now have um, all the all the major pieces needed for this to happen and and it's just a question of cost so my projection is the 2020s will be where these things become 
a lot like like you know very high end uh, home theater displays were in the beginning. Those things were hundreds of thousands of dollars more if you really went you know crazy with that. Uh, after of course you know theaters were you know millions of dollars to build or hundreds of that. You know, so it's going to follow that curve, and I think that you'll start to see hundred inch holographic TVs that'll be in the six figures, they'll get good at the 10 figures, they'll be five figures and they'll be hundreds of dollars. But the more interesting options are gonna be holographic tables. And of course, at some point in about 10 years, 15 years time, they'll be as, this will be as cheap as, as wallpaper. I mean, or, or as, you know, or, 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 or the equivalent, you know, of, of, of what you could you know, take from cheap, you know, LED you know, video panels and, and stitch them together. So there's definitely a, a, you know, within our you know, near lifetimes, this is going to be something we'll be dealing with. And it's fascinating and it's not even, the craziest thing coming down the pipeline, but it's, it's been a dream of mine to sort of see this hardware happen. And it's, by the way, a lot of people ask, well, you know, how does touch work? So the, yeah, the answer is it doesn't right now. Um, it'll just be visual holograms, which will still look insanely real. Um, I've seen the, the prototype panel of six by four inches. We're actually going up there again this week to test on motion and interactive stuff on there. And it projects in and out about two inches. The bigger the panels, the further out it projects. Um, but they are working on touch. Like the lab is working on touch and they're using, um, ultrasonics to create, uh, you know, it's like sound waves that you can use to sort of pinpoint something in space and create a point that feels that has some sort of, 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 you know, sort of feedback on it. And it doesn't give you perfect touch, but it gives you the ability to push objects to feel the surfaces as you project the visual versions of them and push on them. And that's going to be the interface for these things. Um, how that gets to, you know, sub nanometer touch on your fingertips is, you know, that's probably decades out, but I think it's going to be pretty great, right? Right, <laughs> pretty much right out, right, right, right around the third generation, a few years out from now. Um, so that's it in the summary. Yeah. Let me yeah. let me really quickly, because uh, I know you said that's it in the summary, but I've got a few other questions as well. But we have like three other things that we have to do first. The first one of those things is to remind people how to get in touch with us. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone, or if you're on Facebook. Click the links there, follow the instructions, and we'll get you on. Uh, we're going to do that in just a moment. We have a caller holding. Camel, hang, hang tight. We'll be right with you. John, though, it is the bottom of the hour, and you had an announcement that you wanted to make. Yeah, I'll make this really short and sweet. Uh, everybody who's in the chat right now, who, as you often do every week, say hi to Scott Palm. You know that we've been doing the fundraiser for Scott for the Heroic Curriculum, part of the Pop Culture Hero Coalition. Well, here's the update. Thank you, everybody who contributed. We blew past our goal by more than $500, thanks to all of you. I wanted to share just a couple of the most recent comments. Um, I loved uh, Shani Schwartz said, I donated because the anti-bullying curriculum gets me right in my Trekkie soul. And then Brian Hart said, what a great cause. Good luck, Scott. So I've been in touch with both Scott and Chase, and uh, we're all working to, now that the fundraiser is wrapped up, we're leaving the page up there, even though donations will be turned off, but I'm leaving the page there and we'll also connect it uh, back to our social media because now the work begins. Uh, after the Roddenberry Foundation writes that check and we get Scott set up, he will be able to take his curriculum into schools and we're talking about making sure we get back to you photos and video of everything that's happening so you can see Scott at work putting this amazing program into place. So that's it. Um, I mean, the work is not over, but thank you all for helping us on, on this phase of the fundraiser. It was absolutely uh, an honor to work with Scott and Chase and, and see all the incredible comments come in from everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I hope that we get to do this or something like this again. And uh, let's all wish Scott the absolute best of luck going forth and uh, getting this curriculum out to the kids who need it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Watch our social media and we'll link back to that page when we start putting up content from, uh, from Scott's work. It is um, ridiculously touching. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's thank you. And it's not for us. It's not for anything that we're doing. It's for Scott and it's for making uh like we, like we said in the, uh, and the write-up that we did every week, it's, it's, it's for making the world better. And everybody yeah. who, who shared that, everybody who, 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 who donated anything, uh, you did that. And, and I'm floored when I think about it. And so I try not to very often because, you know, I got to get up on the floor <laughs> and do, do what we're doing. Uh, our, jet, our guest tonight is uh, Jules Erbach. Uh, I, I've got questions, but so does Camel. Camel has been very patient. He's been waiting. Uh, and uh, uh, Camel, how's it going on this evening? 
Ah, uh, good. Uh, good evening, John, Ken, and Jules. Um, I know we're pressed for time. I will make it quick. Uh, one of my biggest things that I've been concerned about since this episode of A Ship in the Bottle, where Moriarty is trapped in the hollow deck in a little cube on Data's desk, and he goes, um, oh, there's plenty of episodes in there. He'll think he's traveling around the galaxy for the rest of his life. What do you guys and all Trekkers, do you think that that wasn't um, um, inspiration for the movie The Matrix? And now continuing today, everybody thinks we're in a hollow deck and everything's fake. It's very upsetting. What's your take, gentlemen? <laughs> well, oh, I've, heard, I've heard that The Matrix, uh, what is, um, uh, they might be giants saying about it. Um, um um, in the allegory of the uh, people in the cave, you, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, the allegory, but they might be giant headed as Famous well. Cave. Uh, sure, if you say so. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I've heard that that was actually the basis the basis for the Matrix. I mean, if you've got the thing where, where people are afraid to look outside because of all the shadows, and then once they look outside, they realize it's just you know stuff that they can actually you know move past or conquer or whatever. And then of course they they end up you know killing the guy who says no 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 it's really just stuff don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, the, uh, what you're talking about is kind of scary to me. Uh, Jules? <laughs> I'm not scared by it at all. I mean, I, first of all, it's, it's interesting because I think the idea, it's called the simulation theory. It's been around, I think, for a while. Um, it's becoming, it's, it's, so I'll sort of describe the theory itself, which is that if you're able to prove that you have the technology to put somebody into uh, a simulation like the holodeck that looks so real that you have, or the matrix that you have no idea, you can't really have an idea whether or not it's real reality or fake reality, then the chances are that Statistically speaking, we're not in real reality. It's in a simulated reality. So that's that's the premise. It doesn't mean I completely agree with it or think it's absolutely the case. Um, but then, you know, it, 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 it's sort of it's sort of one of these things where is it is it falsifiable? In other words, can you prove that you're you know does it even matter? Because I mean, ultimately, we, we live you know we have a history to this world. We don't we don't get put in as far as we know. We don't get put into different universes every day. You know, the, the universe has worked more or less the same for billions of years, and it appears like it will. And there's there's so the question is, what's the point of the simulation? Elon Musk, I think, when he posited this, that's where it got a lot of attention, um, more so even in the Matrix movies, where he's like, well, I think we, you know, because video games are getting so good, you can imagine 10,000 years, it'll prove this theory correct. And I think that, that there's hmm. a lot of, it's still it's the same amount of computing power to simulate an entire universe. So there's, there's lots of lines of thinking that's saying, well, if our brains were like in the Matrix and all we had to do is simulate the, you know, things around us, that might explain with quantum effects why we're only able to measure certain things and you know, looking at things affects things, but it's, it's hard to say. And I, I, I do think that the concept of the Russian dolls thing of realities within realities is intriguing and interesting. But um, if you're, if, you know, I, I think it's a philosophical question. It comes down to, you know, I, I work with, um, you have advisors to the company like Lisa Randall, who's a you know, renowned physicist. And I think is working on like space membrane, five dimensional theories and asked her like, what happens below the, the, the plant constant? Like, she says it's a philosophical question. If we can't prove and know how reality works, it's very difficult, even if we can theorize the fact that, yes, we can simulate reality, to know for sure how that happens. And just because we can visually simulate it and make it feel real doesn't mean that, that we've solved everything that the laws of physics allow us to do in our reality. So, you know, there's been some, like, back of the envelope calculations about what it would take to simulate the universe Um at a universal scale, and it's it's crazy. Like there's no known process that would that would make that really easy. So I, it's for this way. It's not something that keeps me up at night, but it's something I think about a lot. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't something deeper going on with reality that we don't understand. There could be other layers to it. I mean, maybe it's like information theory based, right? Which means that there is no computer, but there is some sort of process that simulates it that we just don't see. Um, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not even, we don't even fully understand the four dimensions of space and time that we have in our, in our hands. We can't connect gravity to quantum mechanics. There's so many things that we are like, we, we should figure out first before we, we really start to like, you know, put a stake in the ground and say, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's a shame about the simulated reality. We, we just don't know enough. However, I will say that I am optimistic that you will be able to create a simulated reality, even if it's not as you know, as, as quiescent as this one that we are in, assuming this is base reality, that will look and feel completely <laughs> real. Like it may not happen in, in, you know, completely, you know, with all our senses being completely um, taken over like the matrix in 10 years, but it's not an impossible thing to imagine, you know, in the next century, you know, it's just, you know, we, we already, we already have the basis for computing that. I mean, if you're talking about simulating reality for just each brain that's on planet earth, 
not impossible, um, expensive, but not impossible. And it's something that might affect everything that we do going forward. I mean, you're one Star Trek you know, innovation away from changing the entire way this thing works for space exploration, right? If you can you know, plug your brain into, a, into a, the internet, into virtual reality, into whatever you want to call it, like the matrix, and you have subspace, right? And you have faster life travel, then why send ships out there? Why risk red shirts you know, getting killed every week when you could just send probes <laughs> that are microscopic and don't disturb, you know, don't violate the prime directive, look at all the planets out there, do whatever you want, but your brains over you know, faster than light travel would be connected to these things. And if you don't have faster than light travel, then at least build probes that can model that and you know, allow us to sort of like live that or, or explore that safely on Earth. And barring that, and this is the most likely, you know, reason why you know we haven't seen aliens or maybe how aliens really work. Send probes that are AI based that can do all the work for us and then tell us what it's all about, you know, and 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 act as proxies for us, um, and still be things that don't disturb natural habitats of other planets and and the like. So it's interesting to consider those those options because to me it feels like long before you get warp speed on the Enterprise. Of course, there's something magical. I mean, we we as humans. It's it's why Star Trek and you know is is a passion for us. So we want to walk on other planets. Like it's not enough to just virtually go there. But from a practical perspective, um, you know, once you have the ability to sort of teleport yourself through through a virtual body, you just don't need a spaceship. I mean, it's just going to be simpler to, to to send tiny you know self assembling molecules all over the galaxy and and you know have that uh, you know have that sort of spread humanity if you can. Um, so there is a lot of, of, of value to the idea of simulations th that we can live in and experience. And then of course, there's just a lot of, you know, misery and poverty and famine and, 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 and things that are just not great in the world that, you know, one argument, and it's not necessarily the only one or the right one, but the one argument is if you give people the equivalent of, of, of the holodeck or something to plug into, or let's say, every, you know, the one room in everyone's home is a holographic experience that you can touch. I mean, it does sort of allow them to experience life you know, without, without sort of any limits, the way the phones and the internet has done for information today, where information is just pervasive. I mean, you couldn't get this thing with all the money in the world, you know, 60 years ago. Now everyone in the world, the smartphone has access to everything that could happen for material goods with 3d printing, with medicine, for 3d printing, if we can solve the energy problem. So things like, you know, replication and, and VR and, and holographic experiences, those kinds of things can improve our lives, give people access to places they couldn't go or lectures they couldn't be at. And ultimately, when, you know, if we, if we're able to really make a dent traveling through space, um, it, and there is anything that, that can be done with, with faster light travel, like subspace, free, you know, radio or transmissions, then it, it's like, it's really clear that you would probably want us to have, um, you know, pro-based, you know, VR sort of you know, entities sort of exploring those other worlds through us as proxies. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I think about a lot when I think about the future. So many minds right Thank now. You, being blown in the uh, in the chat. Uh, thank you, Camel, for calling in. Uh, anything Camel. else on your mind tonight? Or is that enough to Pardon me. Um, no, there's not much time, guys. I'm going to get off the phone and get East back to work. All right. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Hey, let me let me ask you, you a question. Guys. Let me ask you a question really quickly, Jules. Um, and it's not going to be a really quick question. I'm just kidding. I wanted to say it would be really quick so I can get in there. <laughs> Uh, so the first time I heard about virtual reality and people have heard on the, who have watched the show, I think I've heard this before. The first time I heard about virtual reality was 1990, January of 1990, when Jaron Lanier came and spoke to the university where I was, uh, where I was attending. And, and what was really exciting was, I mean, we left there knowing that in five years we were all going to have this technology, right? And then uh, what we got instead was the Nintendo power glove and lawnmower man and, yeah. and, and nothing really that was anything like that. Uh, fast forward a little bit, because uh, John mentioned, we talked about uh, in the poll question about augmented reality. Uh, what we got instead was Google Glass. And it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it's not exactly what the promise is either. It's not good. It's, I mean, well, how many I never tried Sorry, it. Google. But it I, I never, I mean, I never got to use it, but it seemed like it was kind of horrible. I mean, witness the fact that we don't have it anymore. It's now the butt of a joke. Mm. See also uh, the Nintendo Power Glove and Lawnmower Man. <laughs> so here are the questions that I have. Like, like when John says what he wants to do is like be able to pick up his phone and point it at that, and that's AR. That to me is precursor to something. We keep hearing rumors about Apple or somebody else getting into augmented reality glasses, and that it seems to me has to be the real way for it to go. But there are any number of ways that, from a consumer side, uh, we could trip and fall. There could be Lawnmower Man yeah. three, for example, or there could be Google Glass two. I guess what I'm wondering is. Is there a way to get over that hurdle with consumers or 
the level you're talking about, it almost sounds like it doesn't even matter about consumers because this technology is happening and, and people can wait for it excitedly or people can get out of the way. Or does this have to be something that something comes along that really gets John and Jane Q on board so that we can actually start to see this stuff really move? Yeah, that's a great question. And to answer your, your point about AR, VR, I mean, I, I mean, when I talk about holographic displays, I'm talking about years and decades out. Like we have glasses today and, and the second VR revolution started in you know, 2012 with, with Oculus. You know, they eventually got bought by Facebook. That, that's one of the reasons why this is not going away. I mean, you have Facebook and you have you know, rumored Apple, right, and Google. By the way, when Apple, I think, puts out their glasses that they do, and it's like the, you know, the Apple Watch, um, it'll probably be like a pair of sunglasses, I'm assuming, and then then you'll see people really adopt it. And that's even what Oculus's mission was. Like they're, the Gear VR, I think, was her best-selling device. That was one that connected the Samsung phone. Um, so your, your phone turned into a VR display. Carmack made it beautiful. beautiful. It's one of the reasons why we invested so much time making it work. Uh, PC VR has not taken off. It's not done great. Um, but mobile VR, maybe. But even if even I think the Gear VR maxed out at 10 million units, that's not a lot. I mean, PlayStation is 100 million. You know, the phones are in hundreds of millions, right? So you you know, it's not, that's not exactly mass adoption. And the reason for that is the glasses are heavy. I wore ODG, which is a company that is now out of business, sadly. Uh, they made the smallest glasses, AR glasses, AR VR glasses I'd ever seen. They were four ounces, and I couldn't wear those things for more than two hours before it started to get uncomfortable. You have to make those glasses really, really lightweight. I mean, look at the consumers not wanting to put on 3D glasses at home in front of their TVs. And those things are just lightweight polarized glasses. That's nothing. So if you have any sort of friction on your face, that's a barrier to consumer adoption, unless the experience is truly magical, in which case people might put that on for a couple of hours, but not for eight hours, not the same amount of time they, they spend looking at their phones or their TVs or, or even, you know, certainly walking outdoors. And so that's where there's this issue that may, it really does need to be super comfortable um, and I also would say that the, the VR AR discussion of which glasses, which things are better. I mean, even Facebook acknowledges that their glasses are eventually going to be AR glasses that have a blackout button that turns into VR. That's the only way these things work. There's not going to be two different types of glasses. You're going to have, it's not going to be beta and VHS. It's going to be AR, VR in one device. You know, if, if you're going to have a pair of glasses, that's clearly where things are headed. And I think that, you know, Mike Abrash, who's there, um, Chief Science Officer, head of Facebook Reality Apps, you know, he's talked about that as, as part of the roadmap for the 2020s. So they will do it. I suspect that um, I've seen glasses that actually have like this, you know, the LCD thing where you can turn hit a button, smokes up, it's totally opaque, goes to transparent. So you can have both. Uh, and ultimately, AR is probably harder because you really have to do a lot of work to mix what you're seeing through the glasses with the reality, with reality and, and really kind of sync that together. If you don't do that right, it's, it's hard. Um, and no one's yet really pulled that off. Magic Leap, which is a company that's raised billions of dollars. We, you know, I, I know there's people that work there and, and they're, they're doing good stuff, but it's tough. You know, those early glasses are like really, they're early prototypes from my perspective. Um, but we'll see. I mean, when Apple gets into the space, that's when you'll know that there's some real there's a real consumer hockey puck thing about to happen. And I think that, um, and I think that what they're working on potentially might be along the lines of what I think Google's next, and just because Google last fell doesn't mean Google stopped working on it. I mean, they've had, uh, they've had daydream, which, you know, Google cardboard before that. And so they're, they're not done, but the glasses space is tough. I mean, it might take, it might take about five years for those glasses to get to sunglass form factor. And by then you might have holographic displays. So there's going to be a point where those things coexist because going outside, if you want to have an AR experience, you know that you're not going to have buildings coated with with holographic panels probably for for many decades to come by the way when you do buildings can be turned invisible they can be turned into jungles it, it's going to change the way cities look by the way it's wild same thing with clothing same thing with, <laughs> with holographic masks which you know if you guys saw years and years on hbo sorry i think it was hbo first episode showed a girl with a transparent mask and she was having emojis over superimposed in her face it was supposed to be place in the future by 10 years and that kind of stuff is going to be is going to be interesting. Um, but I think yeah, the glasses, AR glasses, and AR certainly AR on the phones is cool. Like we're doing stuff around that as well. It's nice, it's convenient, it's easy. People know how to use it. But that's to me not true AR. That is not like your eyeballs are seeing something all the time overlaid on reality. That's tougher. That's that's maybe in the middle of this decade, or or we'll see. Maybe we'll be surprised and we'll see something from one of these guys that really nails that in three years. But I don't think it's a this year or next year thing. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone, or if you're on Facebook, follow all the Facebook rules because they're a tremendous amount of fun. 
Uh, Craig is on the line, and we're going to get to Craig in just a moment. I want to really quickly remind people about the other stuff that they can find on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. That, of course, uh, uh, being a network of podcasts uh, produced either by or in cooperation with Roddenberry Entertainment. You've got, uh, oh, golly, Women at Warp. You've got the Trek Files. You've got Priority One, uh, Daily Star Trek News. Actually, uh, Daily Star Trek News had another really good uh, commentary on Monday's show, I think, about uh, the motion picture as well. So lots of love for that going on. Of course, Shabam is out there, and I feel certain I've missed two shows. I think those two shows are Mission Log and Mission Log Live, but you probably know about those. Oh, I so, like those. Those are yeah, great. They're not, they're not yeah. bad. They're not bad. Yeah. Uh, the place to find them all, podcasts.roddenberry.com. Or uh, if you're in a hurry, podcast.roddenberry.com. Either one of those will work. So uh, check them all out, won't you? Uh, Craig is on the line. Good evening, Craig. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, John, Ken, Jules. Hello, yeah, I was Craig. 16 years old. Uh, I, I was 16 years old when the Star Trek motion picture came out. And John, you've got to see it. Hey, Jules, <laughs> what you're saying, it's really exciting. I'm blown away by, by these concepts. Um, and I don't know if anybody knows, I don't know if it's out or not, but, uh, it's, it's a rap on the Picard show. They did a rap and um, a friend of mine does the contact lenses for all the aliens on the show and for star Wars and everyone involved in the production received this beautiful coin. It's just awesome. Of course she won't give it up, but, um, <laughs> I'm look, uh, you, you, you were well, talking it, about it, a major uh, that'll get stolen off of somebody's desk eventually. And handed to somebody. <laughs> That's really what what we can learn from tonight. Yes, Majel. You mentioned Majel. Uh, I really look forward to her meeting her at the convention every year. And yeah, I really do miss her. Uh, I remember one time she picked me out, and she only picked twenty of us to see a birthday party scene that they filmed for um, uh, for her son um, in the show uh, for Wesley. And it was it was awesome, and she was just so friendly and so nice. I really missed her. How cool! But, uh, she was, she was anyway. an amazing woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I had to just say that, and it's just fascinating listening to what you have to say. Have a great evening, gentlemen. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Craig. So. Come back, if you would, to, uh, well, I, see, I'm interested in the consumer space because I'm interested in the consumer space. I, I guess what I'm wondering, though, the kinds of things you're working on now, um, are these going to be more like, are you seeing this like for business applications? I mean, the idea of it being a way to actually, you know, explore outer space is fascinating as well. I mean, is it going to be a free and breakfast cereal thing? I mean, what is what is the thing is it going to be business applications it's going to be medical applications what is is there going to be a thing that's going to drive this or is it going to is it just i don't want to well, go so far I, I as think, say something like a singularity at, but like that kind of thing well for, as a business as we are today which and we sell octane and our software and our services we also have a whole cloud thing going on which is using blockchain to all, all, so, i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of services that, that can be built on top of this kind of technology and i think to be honest a lot of the use today for AR and VR is in industry, you know, it's for architecture, visualization, um, location-based entertainment, you know, like the voids doing great stuff. Um, and those are, those are the things that they can kind of sustain this, this industry in its current form. Now, the, the reason why Oculus existed was to bring VR to gaming, right. And gaming and entertainment and films and narratives that are done this thing. I mean, that is, that's sort of the next layer. And that is something that, I mean, you know, media entertainment is a multi, 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 you know, hundred, billion plus you know, dollar business if you combine all these things together. So if you just assume that the future of getting VR and AR and mixed reality, say it's volumetric, whether it's holographic or anything else, you know, if everything is sort of displayed in a way that is not on a 2D flat screen, then you know, you're talking about, about you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of, of content that's being pushed for that. And so you look at things like Fortnite, and we have a very close relationship with Kim Sweeney at Epic. Um, you know, I actually showed him the, those ODG glasses, the four ounce ones. He was, you know, it was like his favorite thing. For I mean, there, there is definitely going to be all the all the media, all the entertainment we consume, all the shows we watch, all the experiences that we kind of consume through phones and screens today will have some sort of iteration in, you know, in VR and AR and, and holographic, whichever one gets there first and does it right and is frictionless is, you know, it's going to deliver that. And you will, at that point, rethink everything. It's happened before. We've seen, you know, in, in you know, now things happen much faster, right? I mean, it, took, it didn't take more than 10 years for the iPhone to completely upend 
you know, the desktop and the web abandoned, you know, desktops <laughs> without the web before that. I mean, it's like you've, you've seen this thing every 10 years. So everyone's making the bet that, that you know, this, which is why you're seeing huge companies like Facebook and Google spending billions, you know, rumored, you know, Apple's been the same, right? You know, and Microsoft is, as well, you know, with the HoloLens. I mean, the world's largest companies that are trillions, trillion dollar companies each, right, are putting this kind of effort in there because there is going to be, you know, an entire ecosystem of content and experiences that are analogous to the to the size of what we can do digitally today uh, that works. And I think that that Microsoft is is smartly focusing HoloLens on industrial uses. I mean, there was some controversy, I think, because they did it did some stuff for the military. But ultimately, you know, in a factory work floor, AR glasses actually could be really useful. And it's not like even if it's you know expensive and a little bulky, it's better than than nothing. And in those cases, that's that's fascinating. Consumers, again, it's not going to work until it really gets small and lightweight and you can wear it as easily as a pair of sunglasses. And everyone knows that. Everyone sort of said that that's the, you know, the landing on the moon. That's the goal. That's the Apollo 11 of this, this thing. And when, when you hit that, it'll, it'll be big. But that is going to happen. At, at, in, from my perspective, around the same time, you're going to start to see holographic panels where no glasses will be necessary. Everyone without any glasses will be able to see these virtual experiences just like you can in the holodeck. And you know, you, you, they'll compete, you know, but ultimately from my perspective is, you know, with, with the things we're doing, we're just going to plug into each of those all different challenges, but it's, it, they're going to coexist. But I do think that ultimately, if you don't have to wear anything on your face, that's going to be the, the larger surface area of, of experience for people. Does any part of you worry that it's all going to be um, uh, passive? I mean, that it's going to be like television where it's like, oh, here's this miracle. I'm just going to sit here and watch this until I'm 80 now. Well, or, it, it might I mean, be passive. It might be a lot like social. No, I think one of the things that's going to be truly interactive is you, you look at, at FaceTime or Skype calls. I mean, when you have a holographic, and so I was I actually stopped short of where the roadmap for these holographic panels you know, is at. So you have the visuals in the first generation, which is being worked on now. Yeah, out 2020, 2021, then touch through the ultra, uh, you know, ultrasonic haptic interface. The third part, the third iteration is two bi-directional. So it can, and this is a part where we actually do have a whole suite of hardware technology that we're working on with Lifefield Lab that captures digital doubles, it captures holographically. We've had this as a service for decades. We won two Academy Awards for scanning all the Avengers, all the superheroes on the DC TV shows, like they're all scanned in a light stage. We put that on the back of every panel and you actually have a two-way mirror where you and I, instead of talking and seeing you on a flat screen, it looks like I'm really talking to you. Imagine that kind of level of interaction and reality between two people or between a meeting of people. And, and that's, I think, going to be very interactive and very emotionally gripping for people. And, and certainly it's going to save a ton on, you don't have to take your, your Tesla. If you're worried about the environment, you don't have to drive toward because you can actually have all the trillion rays of light per square foot that you would see looking at somebody across the table are fully captured and represented in front of you. You know, it's not going to, other than shaking somebody's hand, it's like you can have meetings, you can, you can go to places and be in places where it's completely natural. And in that sense, you're going to, you can imagine a lot of more mundane interactive things, but still very important interactive things. I mean, people still talk and communicate over these devices. And if you can make that much more human-like, it's, it's going to be compelling. So I think there's going to be that. Um, and I think the games prove that, yeah, people are absolutely willing to immerse themselves in crazy stuff. I mean, you have, you know, you don't have internet cafes the way that you did it back in the day. But I mean, when, you know, I think there was a point where people would die in China from, you know, exhaustion from playing these things. So I get people, you know, completely immersed in Fortnite. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that, that certainly younger generations are, are more adept and, it, you know, it's sort of immersing themselves in these things. Um, I think there's going to be a mix of things. I think it'll be just like what TVs are used for now or screens are used for now. You see certain, some things are passive, some things are interactive, some things are social, uh, some things are business oriented. And it, it might just be that same very same mix just translated to a whole new medium uh, of experience. See, and without even knowing it, Jules, you actually answered a question that came into our chat. Sean, who asked, uh, with all the talk about VR, AR, and holodecks, the question Star Trek taught us is how long before it malfunctions and tries to kill us. <laughs> so uh, we just barely scratched the surface on that. And honestly, I, I've got like four other topics that we could get into uh, that, that we could just do as deep a dive on. But I know that we're sort of running up against the clock. Uh, Jules, just want to ask, you know, if people want to follow what you do and the technologies that you're in, how should they do that? So you can follow Otoy, my company, on Twitter, at Otoy. That's the easiest one to remember. Um, and we also have a very active presence on Facebook uh, under the Octane Render group. But Otoy.com, at Otoy on Twitter, 
You can follow me personally at Jules Verback, but I also do most of the social media management on our Otoy Twitter account. And there's anything that we're doing, all the things that we're doing in the space, especially, it's like if you follow us on Twitter, you'll get all that information. And um, you can also direct message us and do all that stuff. So happy to interact with anyone interested in this. It's, it's a joy and a pleasure to be in this space and actually see the future happening. Fantastic to have you on. And I, just seeing the comment, so many people's minds are blown and they're saying you need to get Jules and uh, Kyle. So we have David Kyle Johnson, philosopher on every now and then just uh, let you guys go at it. because uh, I, I love that. I'd love to come back. Awesome. <laughs> it would be a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jules. Really appreciate it. And with that... Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live is by Earl Green. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, including not just Mission Log and Mission Log Live, but Women of Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash mission log. Thanks to everyone who joined us live or later, and we will talk to you next week. Podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.